Uh, it's good to see you, everyone. My name is Kurt. Uh, I'm one of the co-pastors here at Cascade. And uh, truly, it is, it is a beautiful thing to have a dedication to remind ourselves of what church is or could be or should be. It's a place to actually connect, to be able to know one another, to be able to look around and feel like you're a part of a family with all of its diversity and difference and similarity. Uh, and if some of you were able to do some some Thanksgiving dinners with family, you know, it can be challenging, it can be great. There's always an aunt or an uncle, I, I'm probably that uncle, that you're like, what are you doing here? What's your whole deal? And that's what this family is when we come together. And it's uh, apropos that we're talking about family and church, because that's the, uh, the book of the Bible that we're in right now, that we're actually concluding the message series on Ephesians today. Uh, Ephesians is a letter, uh, very likely one of the earliest books, although it's a letter written in the New Testament, and it's written to a community about what does it look like to be family? What does it look like to do this kind of new Jesus thing in this town of Ephesus? And we're going to be reading uh, this kind of culminating passage this morning. And, and uh, as we've done for the last couple of weeks, we're just going to jump in and read the passage uh, and I really want you to, to pay attention again to what is this passage, how do you hear it? What does it do inside you when you hear the words? Does it give you hope? Does it fill you with despair? Are you leaning in? You're like, yeah, tell me more, I like that. Are you leaning out like, I don't know that this is something that I, I really enjoy? Uh, because we're going to learn a lot about our relationship to the Bible. Uh, what are some of the cultural context clues that are going into it as we go through it? So, if you have a Bible with you, uh, we read from the NRSV here, uh, so some of the translations could be a little different. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, starting in verse 11, or 10, excuse me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For your struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on whatever what will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, how many of you grew up in a church where this was like a Sunday school lesson at some point? where like you drew out or maybe you made the little armor and you kind of put it on. Uh, I feel like this is one of those verses that, again, we, we come from all different places. Some of you grew up in church, some of you didn't. It's all great. But if you grew up in the church, we love the stories, Noah, and we love the armor of God in the New Testament. Those were like our two jams in Sunday school. It's like a new Sunday school teacher. That was the quick on road for it. When I was growing up as a kid, I'm a child of the 80s, and I, my favorite toys were G.I. Joe. Uh, I loved getting those little characters, and, and if you had the G.I. Joe characters, the best part about them 
were their various points of articulation. Most action figures would just kind of move at the shoulder like this, but G.I. Joe, you got the elbow movement, a little wrist movement. You could really move them around and do anything that you wanted. And when I was a kid, if I would save up money, that is what I wanted to buy, G.I. Joe. I had 30, 40 of them. I kept them in like a, a bait tackle box. And I would, as my interest changed over the years, these action figures would just become the action figures for the new thing. Like as a kid, I got really into football, and then they would just be my football players, and I would set up little plays and run it around, and I like carved a little football out of something to use. And one of the, the toys when I was a little older that I was really excited to have was the Patriot uh, Armored Missile Launcher Transport. And why I was so excited about this in the early 90s, uh, if you were around then, this is when uh, the US went into Iraq and launched a war. And in that war, the Patriot missile was a headline grabber. Because we had what I will submit is the perfectly named uh, military bomb, the Scud missiles. The Scud missiles were being shot at US forces and the Patriot missiles which was a, an acronym for these intercepting missiles that would blow the Scud missiles out of the air. And it only took about a year for Hasbro to say, you know what we need to do for our toys? We need to capture this whole military thing going on and put it right into our toys. Now I thought, when we did the Armor of God, I thought a lot about G.I. Joe growing up. Because if you grew up in another country or a place, or sometimes it's helpful to think of like an alien life form coming in and just doing a study, you would say, whoa, 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 what are these? These are toys for children? You're giving them military figures with tiny little AK-47s that they can hold in their little hands, and then you are creating them after actual military fighting where people are dying, these are the toys that you're giving your children. The reason why I bring that up is because uh, whether or not you played with G.I. Joe or even familiar what G.I. Joe was, we've grown up in a world, in a country, in the United States, where the military and militarism is everywhere. It's just a part of the cultural landscape that we're in. Uh, and I want to be clear, as we kind of talk about military and kind of the, the cultural impact of the military, I know that we have service people that are here in the room. Uh, and I want to create a, a, a disconnect when we talk about the military force. It is not an indictment of anyone who served in the U.S. military at all. But rather, it's a look at what does this thing that we have culturally, how does it impact the way we read the Bible? Because this is some of the work that we, we want to do here that's really important. We don't come from the Bible from any time, and we don't come from the Bible from any place. We read the Bible from this place in this time. And so if we don't do the work of understanding kind of the cultural things around us, then there's things that we'll miss about what the Bible could be talking about or saying. So to kind of set some of the scene of what, what am I talking about with G.I. Joe and all that, uh, here's uh, some kind of quick stats. The, the first, if you look at military bases, we're going to look at the top four countries with military bases in the world. South Korea has 73 military bases, fourth most in the entire world. Number three, we have Germany 
with 119. And in just a squeaker, Japan has just one more at number two. Any guess who number one is? The United States has 750 military bases. 750. Putting some of this in another context, uh, there's, there's almost no way you're going to see this, uh, but, but just to kind of give the scale, this is numbers in U.S. dollars, in billions of dollars spent on military. The United States is number one with $778 billion spent annually on the U.S. military. To put that in context, you see this is the top 15. You would need to combine 2 through 12 and you would still be $12 billion short. I'm sorry, $14 billion short of what the United States spends on the military. So all that to say, when we read about the armor of God and putting on a breastplate and a sword and kind of taking this, how does our country's relationship with the military and the amount of money that's spent on the military, how does it impact the ways that we read it? probably as a pro-military stance. In the same way that our country is bracing for war at all times, we also, in a spiritual realm, need to brace ourselves for war. And if you, you come from a place where there's high kind of military and patriotism tied, then it would say that this is an attribute that we need to be doing this. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to be as prepared as the U.S. military is prepared around all the time. So, if we kind of had that setting, let's go back and say, well, well what was some of the setting of the day? Uh, first, I want to go back, and uh, a lot of times in Scripture, you're actually reading passages that are making allusions to things in the Old Testament. And the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is certainly one of these. I want to read from Isaiah 59. Uh, the whole section leading up to it, I encourage you to read Isaiah 59, 1 through 14. It's talking about how God is looking at the land and seeing massive miscarriage of justice. That evil is being done over and over again. People are being hurt and oppressed and marginalized over and over again. And this is God's view of it. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm brought him victory, and his righteousness upheld him. In verse 17 it says, He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in fury as in a mantle. In Isaiah, it's speaking of God looking at the world and how it operates. And uh, the terminology we use a lot from the, the Old Testament, we think, has a lot of parallels. In the New Testament, what Jesus talks about is the kingdom of God is this word shalom. And shalom isn't just peace, because uh, a lot of times for, for us, peace can be translated as like the absence of war, but rather a kind of peace that, that, that allows a mutual thriving of all people that your thriving or this country's thriving doesn't come directly at the expense of another individual or another country. And, and another way of, of framing that, when you see that there's these injustices that happen based on people that live in different ways, is to say a lack of justice. There's no justice in the land. There's no justice in our midst. That this is something that God 
steps up against. And what's interesting about this passage is that God stands up against this injustice because God looks around and says, no one else is doing it. No one else seems to be troubled by this injustice. Nobody else seems to be stirred by the fact that there is oppression and marginalization and people made in the image of God, God's own children, are being mistreated. So how would that connect to Paul and Paul's day? Now, the first thing, if, if we're saying that Paul is creating kind of a pro-military approach to understanding God and how uh, the Christian family works, it'd be kind of like, again, going back, if, if you grew up in church in Sunday school, did any of you ever sing the, I may never march in the infantry? Anybody do that? Ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. Yeah. But what are we? I'm in the Lord's army. What's the Lord's army? What does that mean? If we think that Paul is saying, hey, we're going to enlist in, in this kind of Christ army and move forward, we should probably look at what are the consequences of warfare, especially of the group of people that Paul is from, Paul being Jewish. Uh, we have an image here of the Colosseum in Rome. Familiar with the Colosseum? One of the seven... Uh, more recent wonders of the world. Has anyone ever been? Has anyone ever seen the Colosseum in Rome? Yeah. I did not know until this week. Do you know what funded and largely built the Colosseum in Rome? The Jewish temple. It was actually uh, the Jews that were around in Jesus' time and age, 70 AD. So Jesus is around from, you know, roughly zero uh, he leaves about 30 A.D. 70 A.D., the Roman government comes in and destroys the Jewish temple. All that's left now is the Wailing Wall that exists there. They plundered the Jewish temple, and the riches from that plunder was the financial backing to create the Roman Colosseum. And in fact, if you're going to build something this incredible, uh, some slave labor force is probably a pretty good idea. It's largely believed that enslaved Jews were used to build the Roman Colosseum. Now, this is around actively during the time that Paul is writing the letter to Ephesus. So, if you are Jewish in the ancient world, what is the value of military? What's the value of fighting and standing against, launching an attack and warfare against the Roman government? It's enslavement, destruction, and violence. And in fact, before 70 AD, we have the Maccabean Revolt, which again was Jewish-initiated, and they actually held uh, kind of their own sovereign land for a bit while there was dysfunction going on in Rome before a new Caesar was set, and then it came and it was squashed. After 70 AD, there was another Jewish revolt in 120, which was also squashed and wiped out. It led to incredible amounts of death, destruction, suffering, and loss of identity for the Jewish people. I don't think Paul is writing a pro-military screed. I, I don't think he's saying, hey, we need to militarize here as Christians and be pro-military when he's seen the amount of destruction it's going. But in fact, speaking directly to these eyes that say, that's the thing to have. If we were powerful enough, 
if we were Roman centurions, if we just had enough military force, then we would be safe, we would be okay, and we would know that we were in God's good favor. And what Paul, I believe, is doing here is actually subverting that narrative to say, you want a sword, I'm actually going to say that we go back to this understanding of Isaiah and we take on a different kind of sword. Stop longing for an actual breastplate. Stop longing to have enough military technology in the day to be safe, to be okay, because that is actually a lie that we can buy that begets greater and greater levels of violence and hatred and harm in our world. That there's a different thing that we do, that we don't take a military mindset to following Jesus. I mean, think about that for a second. If what we're taking from this is we need to gear up and be prepared to go to battle in defense of Jesus, do you remember the last time someone took up arms in battle in defense of Jesus and what Jesus said? This is when Jesus was being arrested. Peter pulls out a sword, cuts off the ear of a Roman centurion, and what does Jesus do? Put your sword away, and he heals the centurion's ear. If what Jesus wanted was us to gear up and to armor up and to militarize up as followers of Jesus, he probably would have said something about that. In fact, I think it's subverting this lie. Uh, I want to talk for a second about the, the retributive violence. Retributive violence is, is basically this concept that if someone creates some level of violence against you or your family or people you love, that if you bring to them a similar level of violence as retribution for what they brought to you, you will stop the flow of violence. You will ultimately bring about justice. And this concept shouldn't be foreign to us because, again, it's in the Bible. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's retributive violence. They take something from you, you take that same thing commiserate away from them. What does Jesus say about this? You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. If someone says to you, you have to walk with them a mile, walk with them two miles. They ask for your cloak, give them all of the clothing that you have. That Jesus and his very life, the fact that Jesus, within Christian theology, Jesus is the most powerful human being to ever walk on the planet. And what did Jesus do when he was arrested by the military state and was going to be crucified? Allowed himself to be crucified. Actively not creating or leading into this idea of retributive violence. That if we just bring the right measure of violence in, then we will truly have justice. I, I think this passage as we wrestle with it has kind of two questions for us to sit with. The first is, what does justice look like? I think part of what Paul is dealing here with the allusion to Isaiah is justice. If justice doesn't look like bringing the right measured degree of harm to the person that you disagree with or has created harm against you to kind of equal the slate, then what does justice look like? How do we function as people, as followers of Jesus, as people of justice? And 
what I love about this question is I'm not going to fill in that blank for you. I know we all love Mad Libs Church on some level, but we're not going to do that. Or maybe we are going to do that, but how would you bring about justice in your sphere, in your world? Where you work, where you live, where you travel and regularly are, what does justice look like? Is there some way that your participation in the world actually brings injustice to another and that we can correct that? There's something that we can do that brings about a level of justice in this world. When, when Paul is talking about this whole thing, and, and a number of biblical scholars say that actually this section, this armor of God, is putting a bow on the entire letter to Ephesus. He's summing up everything that he's talked about. This new way of organizing as a community, this new way of being around Jesus, ultimately the call is what does justice look like in this new community? How do we see and know and love each other? And what's beautiful about a family is that it's diverse and varied in our communities. It's not the same. But it depends on the uniquenesses of you and how God made you and where you are in the world today that as you bring that out into the world and others bring that about, we actually see a whole community lift around the concept of justice. The second question is... How can we reject the lie of retributive violence? There's more than enough circulating violence in our world and culture today. Violence of words, violence of action. Uh, we just have witnessed in this past few weeks what does acts of violence brought to courtroom settings look like? Do we see any measure of justice there? Do we believe that there's some level of violence brought against people that will ultimately level the scale of justice? Or is there a different way that we show up in the world? Now, I, I want to be clear, and I usually add this caveat, that, that to end the lie of retributive violence is not for those of you who have been in abusive systems or cycles or who have been actively abused over and again to continue receiving that abuse. But instead, I believe that this call for Jesus to exit these cycles of abuse, to get the space and safety necessary to end this lie. It's not to continue to submit yourself to abuse. That's not Christian or virtuous. But instead, how do we participate in that? Is there some way where we're not saying that if, if you're interested in this Jesus story, if you're interested in what does it look like to live in a world where there's God or an understanding of how the things beyond our understanding function, that there's ultimately a higher calling to how we see one another and how we treat one another and we love one another, then there probably is a way that we actually engage in how we respond to violence that should look different that isn't just about stopping it, but it's actually about putting something more beautiful in its place. A people of justice, that we respond to violence with justice, not further retribution. Ultimately, I think the hope, if Paul had for it, in this whole letter, is Paul is inviting us to look at ourselves and see ourselves differently. 
And I think there's some ways that he uses language that I'm not a huge fan of, honestly, in this passage. Uh, not just this passage, but, but in the entirety of Ephesians, where he talks about with the Gentiles, you were broken and lost and dumb and, and dim in all your ways. I think that some of that language can be used to other and diminish other people in the world. But instead, for us to say, is there a way that I'm looking at who I am in this world? I'm evaluating how I show up. I'm asking questions about how I show up. What does that look like for you? These are good questions. And I think the imagery here, if we see it as actually a subversive statement that is rejecting this kind of militaristic view that if I just gear up enough militarily, then I'll be safe. But instead, maybe inviting us to, is there a level of preparation and intentionality we're putting into each day to how I'm showing up, to what I'm doing? Am I taking time to breathe deep and to prepare myself for injustices I will see? Am I preparing myself for levels of violence and harm that I will receive and thinking about how do I respond to that? And how do I bring about justice in my sphere? I want to go into a, a time of prayer uh, and give some space in that prayer so that you can wrestle with those questions in this time. That you can say, where is God inviting you? Would you pray with me? Lord, I... I pray that we could grapple with the world that we live in. And God, that we live in a country that invests more money and more space and time to try and protect ourselves than any other country in this world. And God, as that is our place, I pray that we would ask different questions of what it means to show up in this world. If we're interested in the path that you led, if we're interested in the path of Jesus, may the way that we show up look different. And God, as we look around in a world that has so much injustice, may we see ourselves in that Isaiah 59 passage is the people that would step up and say, here I am, Lord, to address this injustice. God, may we be not just people of absence, known for what we don't do, but God, may we be known for what we do bring into this world. That God, it would be an addition to the world. And so God, in this time, may we be able to reflect what that looks like in little and big ways in our own lives, in our own spheres. God, would you speak to us? Would God, would you illuminate to us where justice needs to be brought and God, how we can do that? God, may this world be different. And may it start with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.